Today we're going to be talking about complex post-traumatic stress disorder, supra states, splits in the personality, and emotional flashbacks. Uh, to give you the Cliff Notes version within the first 30 seconds of what I'm going to be talking about, so you can decide whether you want to stick with it or bugger off elsewhere. I'm going to be talking about the way in which the emotional flashback part of the um, CPTSD can actually show up as uh, being a kind of um, multiple personality disorder now known as dissociative identity disorder and what we can do about it with a particular focus on one commonly held personality of a few. There's almost like CPTSD archetypes called the sad baby. It's called that because I named it that today at lunchtime. It's not published research. It's just an idea. It's just a hypothesis. So a very, very, another thing that's not published, that's a training tool that I used to train people in, in combatives was called suprastates. So if you're familiar with neuro-linguistic programming, um, a lot of time is spent exploring the concept of states and changing people's states and altering states. Um, so you would have states like uh, confidence would be a high resource state. If you went into something else, that would be maybe considered a low, uh, low resource state or cheerfulness is a state. So I was like, oh, there's states. But if you have supra, not super, supra would be like an organizing governing overall state and within this state a super state you would also have attitudes um not a full-blown belief system but one or two recurrent dogmatic thoughts that were rigid enough to be considered beliefs that would go in with the super state these um excuse me forgive me it's eight o'clock at night and i have no camera person with me um this was used as a training tool, a uh, training concept by me to take people from states of uh, fear and of being frozen in the face of violence to being in a state where they could uh, negotiate or what we would now call in the CPTSD lingo, fawn or um, what's another good way of saying fawning, negotiating. You know, when you see like hostage negotiation, these are in terms of traumatic responses to threat. Uh, that's, that's classed as a fawn response. I'll give you this so you don't do that. Um, uh, negotiating, fawning, a quid pro quo relationship is formed. Um, and I would also take people from fear and being frozen to an intense flight state because I was teaching self-protection and this was considered a desirable outcome where being frozen with fear was not. And many people complain that uh, you know, I just couldn't get aggressive. I just couldn't get myself in that psychological space. So I would use the concept of suprastates. In dissociative identity disorder, um, bearing in mind there are a statistically significant number of psychiatrists who say that they don't feel that dissociative identity disorder exists in the way it's described in the literature. I need to say that first. I think it's one of these concepts that has been um, uh, exaggerated in films and in TV shows and in books because it's an interesting idea. It's a, it has a filmic, uh, story-like quality to it. A person could go into a, a, a another state, like a super state, or in this case, they'd actually call it, um, a split or in more modern parlance, an alter. 
So if you had like one in one person with dissociative identity disorder, they have five different alters. Uh, maybe they were responses from different levels of, of traumatic experiences in that person's life. So you might find a five-year-old, you might find a 14-year-old, you might have somebody in there who's extremely aggressive, you might have somebody in there who represents the different 4F trauma responses of flight, fawn, freeze, and fight. Um, so these are alters in dissociative identity disorder. I am assuming that you know a little bit of the language. I'm not going to go and describe it. It's not a white belt video for white belt people. If you don't know what the four Fs of CPTSD are, um, I highly recommend you start with Pete Walker's work, particularly his book, um, CPTSD from Surviving to Thriving. Just so nobody writes in the comments, what did he say? Pete Walker. I'm not stuttering. It's not a hard name. Pete Walker, as in when you walk, Walker. Yeah, you can cope with that, right? Pete Walker. Or you can just Google what you think I said, and it will probably tell you. So dissociative identity disorder is also something that you need to have an understanding of. And then CPTSD, you need to have an understanding of that, and emotional flashbacks. This is being described elsewhere. I'm not going to go over it again here. I'm going to assume that you already know what that is. And if you don't, then may God have mercy upon you, because this is going to get overwhelming very quickly. So emotional flashbacks are a key element, in my humble opinion. Uh, the two key elements of CPTSD that need to be resolved are emotional flashbacks and the uh, superego issue, which also is a kind of alter or split in the personality. So what can start to happen with CPTSD is when you go into an emotional flashback, just like here where I said, you know, you have different states. You might have a state of confidence. You might have a state of enthusiasm. You might have a state of certainty uh, or a state of anxiety or a state of high energy, low energy. These are states. There are supra states, which are bundles of states that also have beliefs and patterns of behavior with them. So they become mini personalities. My um, uh, coaching state might be a, a supra state that has confidence in it, uh, curiosity. Um, I will endeavor to be uh, funny. Uh, I'll have a belief which is focused around optimism, like optimism that's without reason, that's like zealotry just for the sake of it, you know, and there'll be a certain way that that is formed and that becomes a supra state. In dissociative identity disorder, without getting into the debate that really is not it's not that relevant for us. It's for academics to, to fight uh, over whether dissociative identity disorder does actually function the way it's described in the literature or whether it's being hijacked. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not qualified to say. I just, we should be aware that we shouldn't just go, oh, dissociative identity disorder. Yeah, I saw the film Split. I know how it works because I've seen a film or I read a book about it. So I know how it works. It, there's still a subject of some debate, but certainly something like this seems to be happening. And that's what I want to talk about today. So when you have a suprastate, what I'm suggesting is that somewhere between the suprastate concept, the dissociative identity disorder concept, discrete boundary between the two, um, and the emotional flashback concept is that your emotional flashbacks can be multi-layered can be uh, trigger specific and can manifest as superstates, which effectively become their own mini personalities or splits. 
effectively. I'm not saying that they are. I'm not saying that you have this dissociative identity disorder if your emotional flashbacks are intense enough. But there's a couple of things with this that I really, really want to go through with you today. So imagine somebody has an emotional flashback and the trigger is abandonment. Abandonment. Feeling abandoned. Now, if you are, you know, a blue belt or above in your CPTSD training, and I hope that you are, uh, you'll know that this is a very, very common trigger. And that people, humans with a complex post-traumatic stress response, rather than disorder, um, frequently struggle with feelings of abandonment, even if there is nothing in the environment that proves that they have been abandoned, they can just feel abandoned and then retroactively seek for evidence in the environment. So I'm not good at drawing. I'm not particularly good at writing either. This is a human head. This is a nose. I don't really know how this could go any worse at this point. And there's the neck and there's the eye. Kind of looks like Charlie Brown with a really long neck. So um, Charlie uh, sees something, thinks something, and then feels something in his heart, right? So we imagine that the feedback loop, we, we would like to believe that we're rational, reasonable entities, and therefore our feedback loop works one way in the way that it should. Information comes from the outside. I have a thought, and the thought leads to a feeling. And in a person who is normal, whatever that is, never met a normal human yet, but apparently... That's the standard that we should all be comparing ourselves to. You would see something, you would think something, and then you would feel something. And the more normal you are, the more neurotypical you are, then the more appropriately you can uh, apply thoughts and feelings to perceptions. And the map of reality in your head, to paraphrase Korzybski, don't ask me to, don't ask me to spell that name. It's, it's Polish. There's a lot of consonants and there's no vowels to give us any rest halfway through. It starts K-O-R-Z-Y, Kozip. Oh, it must just end S-K-I, something like that. He was a linguist. Um, he informed a lot of neurolinguistic programming and the way that went. And he was famous saying the map is not the territory, which means that the thoughts, the, the thoughts and the feelings we have about the world don't always accurately reflect what's out there. What's out there. So our map of reality doesn't always accurately reflect what's out there. A movement towards sanity, a movement towards health is to try and accurately map external reality. It's very challenging, very challenging for all humans. When somebody has CPTSR and they're emotionally dysregulated, we know that they can just get feelings that go up and down uh, with very little relationship to what's actually going on in their lives. The feelings then affect their thoughts and these then affect their perceptions. So they start to do something called projection or projective identification. So now instead of information coming in to Charlie's eyes, he's feel and then it affecting his thoughts and then he feels a certain way and stores that information appropriately. What's happening is he's not feeling good. So his thoughts go wild. And then he starts projecting it outward. So let's imagine he feels abandoned. He starts going, nobody loves me. Nobody's ever loved me. They always leave me. Um, no matter what happens in the end, they'll just, they'll just leave me here to die. And uh, everybody's a bastard. Ooh, you bastard, Pat. 
And then he will have these feelings, he'll have the thoughts that go with that, and then he starts looking for evidence that in the, in the environment. And if it's not there, he'll make it up. And at this point, we start to say that somebody is now tipping into an area that we would call not sane because they're seeing shit that isn't there. Now, when you were a kid and you first learned about what not sane was, I mean, and maybe it's age specific, somebody born in 78, Generation X, our view in comics, the first time I saw somebody going crazy would have been Tom and Jerry, like Daffy Duck, um, the, the, the bunny that got hunted all the time. Roger Rabbit. Thanks. Everybody's, everybody was screaming, Roger Rabbit. I got it. Thanks. Um, the, the comics that I would read as a kid, you know, like the Beano and stuff. If you're American, that probably doesn't mean that much, but, um, crazy meant usually somebody's identity had snapped and they thought that they were somebody they weren't. They thought that they were Joan of Arc. They thought that they were Napoleon and then they would be totally doolally and they would just see things that weren't there. Uh, which, you know, we know, I guess, from this kind of a model, it's like an extended version of that. Psychosis, I suppose, could be said to be a very, very extended version of this, where it's gone on for so many years that the neural pathways have actually started to um, malform and rewire in a way that the person can't just see reality. There's always going to be voices. Um, there's always going to be uh, parts of the personality, different different superstates arguing and fighting with each other and impulses that then get shoved to one side and twisted and moved around that increase the emotional dysregulation that stop them seeing reality more clearly. But we're not going to talk about psychos uh, schizophrenic uh, spectrum disorders today. It's That's way beyond me anyway. I'm not read enough about it. So this can lead to, I will assert, that this model could very easily uh, lead to delusion that is so intense that it would be diagnosed as a clinician as full-blown psychosis, a full-blown psychotic delusion. You have the capacity, I have the capacity, we all have the capacity, if our emotional state is low enough to literally see things that are not there, hear things that are not there, feel things that have nothing to do with what's going on in the external environment. Why did I choose abandonment? Because today, I wanted to talk about a concept called the sad baby that I made up this afternoon at lunchtime. Um, and I want to discuss it in terms of it being a superstate or like an alter, like a split in the personality. But really, it's in functionally, I think it's more of a trained, trauma-based, environment-based uh, superstate response. Not an effective one, an ineffective, a, a, a poor, a maladaptive, uh, suprastate response, uh, a maladaptive personality. So imagine it's layered. It's not just feelings of abandonment, it's feelings of anxiety. Um, <clears throat> it's feelings of frustration. Uh, it's now, after many years of cycling through this again and again, and then going through self-fulfilling prophecies and pushing people away by being overly emotionally intense and saying things that are not there. It's uh, delusions of persecution. Oh, I spelt that first time as well. Damn, I'm on fire. Persecutory delusions. Um, a propensity towards giving up. And uh, what was the other one I wanted to layer in? Isolation. A propensity towards self-isolation. Um, I'm not worth knowing anyway. 
Uh, other people aren't worth knowing. I don't love me. I don't love anyone. People aren't lovable. People are shit, so on and so forth. Everybody leaves you anyway. So it's extremely negative layering of uh, feelings that are actually emotional flashbacks that over the years become part of uh, Charlie Thin-Necked, Charlie Brown's, weird-headed Charlie Brown's identity. So um, if you imagine, how am I going to draw an ego? Well, I've always drawn it as a circle to describe to you guys, like if it gets damaged, then the, the ego boundary is like a single cell. I think of it as like a single cell, or if you like Kabbalah, it's Yod, the single cell um, creature. And if the uh, nucleus is working, then that which needs to be excreted is excreted, that which needs to be absorbed is absorbed, and all, all is well. And the, it remains a sovereign nation state. If the boundaries are broken, things break in that aren't supposed to break in, things that should be kept nourishing the cell leak out, and that's not good. That's, that's ego boundary break. So here's his ego, is this circle. And then he starts to internalize this experience because of his emotional dysregulation, his perceptions, he layers one, two, three, four, five, six uh, emotional flashbacks. He layers six emotional flashbacks. He, he's not doing it. He's not deliberately doing it. It happens that. It happens to him based on his traumatic experience when he was a baby, when he was a tiny, tiny child with no ego boundaries, no possibility of saying no and refusing that which the environment um, compelled him to absorb. Um, because my other idea, I think it's mine, somebody will tell me, apparently it's not, other people must have thought this as well, is that um, because the ego boundaries are so weak before the age of four years old that if it happens in the environment, you're doing it. So if your dad beats your mum, you're, you're your dad and you're beating your mum. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a tough one to get your head around. If you're raised in a war zone, and uh, snipers are shooting, you know, women and children, and your city is falling apart, being mortared by your cousins, um, you're doing that. You, you, because there is no you. So you would understand this from narcissistic personality disorder. Damn it, I said the N-word yet again. Um, there's no ego boundaries. You're all just me. Well, in uh, this idea, the concept of the N-word personality disorder comes from a Freudian concept, which is narcissism. You should, you know, as a toddler, you should be engaged in narcissism. He never said healthy narcissism. Other psychoanalysts in the Freudian tradition assumed that what he meant was there was a type of narcissism that was distinct to malignant, exploitative narcissism called healthy narcissism, which a baby goes through. No adults should have that. That would be weird. That would be uh, maladaptive. A, a, a tiny child before the age of maybe five uh, should have this kind of narcissism. So there's no boundaries. So if it happens in the environment, you're doing it. So if you were raised in an environment where an alcoholic mother and an, uh, an abandoning father is torturing or psychologically abusing or neglecting the other kids and you... That's you that's doing it. It becomes internalized. It's me. And you would never, as a three-year-old, form the belief, I'm being tortured by my mum because my mum's a fucking dick and she's mad and an alcoholic and has problems. You cannot think that. You're in your most religiously submissive phase. You're in your most mystical phase. Everything is magical at that age. 
These are gods. And I don't, if you go, oh yeah, yeah, I've heard this before. I know what you mean. Euphemistically, they're gods. You'll miss the fucking point. Your parents, the adults in your world, when you were a child, were gods, not euphemistically, not euphemistically. Forget euphemism, forget like fake fucking irony. Oh, I get it. I already know. I read that book. No, you fucking don't. I know that you don't because I can tell by the way people talk about this. They don't, they, they don't have the humility to go back. Go back. Be a child again. Be a, a three-year-old again. Be tiny. Be a tiny child person who can't even get off a couch. Like you don't get to just walk off a couch. You have to, you're so small. You have to turn around and you shovel your bum out and you put your feet down and then you walk or you waddle. You can't even, you can't even run away. You're less than knee height, the adults. They're not euphemistically gods. They're not symbolically gods and goddesses. They are gods. They are goddesses. And it's not like, don't turn this into an intellectual wank exercise. Accept it as first level reality so that you can reconnect to the experience that's holding you back. Total vulnerability. God doesn't love me. Fuck. God. God, like not my dad, oh, my dad didn't really love me. Well, you know, there's other people I can still form loving relationships. I can get married. I can have kids. I love my wife. I love my- God didn't give a fuck. God didn't love me. What does that mean? What's the implication of that? The implication of that is I must be bad. I was abandoned. So it's not that my dad's an asshole or my mum's an alcoholic prick or you can't have the ego boundaries to know that or to say that because you're in total submission. It's not, we don't then need, we don't then need the discipline to kneel. You're kneeling. You're born kneeling. You don't need all the religious disciplines that come afterwards are trying to replicate the child experience. And they largely fail. I mean, sometimes you'll get moments and you'll get back there. Um, but it's, it's, you're born in a state of submission. You're born kneeling. You're born fawning. You're born into, um, what is it called? Uh, subordination. They're gods. If God is torturing me, if my mother is hurting me, uh, God is hurting me. Why? Well, it's, <laughs> it's God. It's the goddess. I mean, she can't be wrong. That doesn't exist. So I must be bad. So I'm bad. So I'm wrong. So then you end up with, for years this goes on, and even if even if the nature of the abuse changes, um, it's harder to, you know, kick people around when they grow in height and weight, and then they can punch back. And then it, so you do it verbally, you do it psychologically, you do it emotionally, you do it covertly, as a cunning, abusive person, of course, would. The key thing is the, is, uh, that for this video, I want to talk about the abandonment and the layering of abandonment and then what this does. Now, I'm going to suggest something that I think is unique. I'm not a fan of Jungian archetypes. Um, in fact, I've always stood by the idea that it's pointless. Like, this is just like so, you know, therapeutically, it doesn't help. I do think there is, um, Usefulness here though, if we start identifying CP, CPTSD archetypes like sad baby, I think everybody with the CPTSD response has this because there must have been an emotionally and physically or, and or physically, excuse me, talking too fast. 
abusive environment, um, there must have been moments of abandonment. There must have been moments where people could have helped you and didn't. And that you were aware of that even though you, you were a child. And why didn't they help you? Well, have you ever been an adult seeing a child be abused and because of the familial relationships or the politics of the family or the legality of it, there isn't really that much you can do. Well, that eight-year-old knows that it's being left. Um, even if it doesn't hate you for it, the eight-year-old might go, well, yeah, I, I, I can dig it. I can see why this is happening. The child is still being abandoned. This, I'm not going to go into it too much, but like this could be overt or this could be covert. But what would end up happening is that you'll flash back, not just into uh, certain emotional states like frustration or persecution or self-abandonment and giving up. You'll flash back into a whole personality, a whole alter, kind of. It's really more of a super state that's trained. So you're, you're, your entrained response is not just an emotional flashback. It would become an abused archetype flashback. So now, just like I said to you over here, you're showing up not just with emotions, you're showing up with, what did I say about me being a coach or you as a driver or that person is a really good tennis player or this person is a piano player or that person is a rock star or, or whatever. Within the super state and within the description usually of different alters, you, not always, but sometimes, uh, but within the super state, certainly different attitudes, different beliefs and different patterns of behavior. So sad baby, sad baby is a sad baby because it couldn't defend itself. There was nothing it could do but simply accept what was happening and feel sad. So then it's, if I say to somebody who's done an abused archetype flashback into sad baby, go do your exercises today, go do your emotional literacy, they won't do it. And then we'll go, why the fuck, why are you being a resistant client? Why are you resisting me? Because they've actually flashbacked into an abused archetype called sad baby. Maybe there are other ones. There are definitely other ones. Uh, feel free to suggest them in the uh, comments. Uh, I can think of another archetype, angry monster, um, sexy beast, you know, the histrionic personality disorder, the tendency to hypersexualize everything could be an archetypal flashback. It could be an emotional flashback that has become its whole, a whole archetype that now has patterns of behavior, uh, attitudes, and even beliefs that come with it. So how do we know this is true? Because you've dated somebody like this and you've been somebody like this that somebody else has dated. On one day, you'll have a certain set of behaviors and a certain set of beliefs, and then you'll get into a mood, <laughs> A mood, <laughs> a hyper weaponized mood called an emotional flashback where you, your belief system changes. Yesterday you were philosophical and optimistic. Today you are um, uh, just submissive and fatalistic. This is fate. There's nothing, nobody can escape fate. So just, just accept it. Your belief system will change on different days. It's going to be very frustrating for the people around you and it can make them uh, assume or diagnose you based on YouTube videos they've watched that you have a personality disorder um, or that you're lying when your patterns of behavior change and your attitudes show up differently you're showing up as a different person so 
What do I want you to do about this? I want you to think of times, and everybody watching this will have gone into this, where you are flashing back into a modality of sad baby and nobody loves me. And I'm going to suck my thumb and I'm going to have a little cry and I'm going to respond in a way that I would not normally respond. I'm going to become weepy. I'm going to become passive. Now, nothing wrong with crying, nothing wrong with grieving, nothing wrong with self-care, nothing wrong with taking a time out if that's what you need. What I said and hear what I'm saying, not what you're hearing. So don't be a long neck Charlie Brown. Don't be a long neck Charlie Brown. What I'm saying is identify when and if you're flashbacked into something that you think is an abused archetype that is sad baby. Why is that good? Well, you can kind of, <laughs> from that point, if you can identify it and you can externalize it and you can give it a name, you can start to deal with it. You actually have a chance of doing something about it rather than just being at the mercy of uh, your feelings and, and, the, and the emotional flashbacks all the time. You could actually start to identify it and then say, okay, when that shows up for me, who do I become? When this shows up for me, how do I act? When this shows up for me, and I've slipped into this, how do I treat the people around me? When this shows up for me, and I come from this place, what are the results that I generate in my life? Are they good? Are they desirable? Or are they less than desirable? Sad baby, I named it and thought that's a good name to bake uh, self-compassion and forgiveness into the cake. This is you because you were a baby, but you, you, the ego, the ego wasn't there. Like, I don't remember being a baby and neither do you. Why can't we access those memories? Because there's no, there wasn't an ego there to put an experience there and go, oh, that was a lovely day I had out with Mama and we saw some daffodils and, you know, I'll remember the yellow and the blue of the sky. And you can't, you're not, how the, f you can't remember. So I'm saying you, so philosophically, I was a baby. The name on the birth certificate, my national insurance number, my passport number was the same. But in any sense, was I there? Well, part of me. I mean, if you want to get, like, was my soul there? Maybe, you know, but, but the me that is here now, no. So don't, if you think you're going into, like, you, like, I'm presuming most of you now who have been following me for a couple of years, you're quite emotionally literate. You, I hope, would do an emotional literacy exercise, at least in your head, if you feel yourself drifting off, if you have a bad day or an upsetting experience, and you would access, how do I feel about this? What's going on for me emotionally? What's going on for me somatically? What is this like? Am I flashing back here to uh, another experience? And if so, what was the or original experience? being curious, having a sense of humor, being philosophical, and, and being open. These are the things I want you to do. I want you to remember that when, if you feel like, yes, this is me, I go into sad baby, that shows up. The compassion that's baked into it is, that's a fucking baby. That's a baby that's still being switched on, being activated inside of you, or rather it's a totally helpless, tiny child's response to the overwhelm and the horror 
and the terror of the adult world, which is a place of, I remember, I, 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 a lot of like Freud's ideas came from the fact he was very introspective and he, um, I, I, you know, people, it's fashionable to beat on Freud now. And I did it for a few years as well. I joined in and beat him up as well to my shame. And then I went back and looked at it. I was like, he's one of the few people who actually said something that is genuinely unique, that is genuinely fresh. And I think he's really, really, uh, uh, heavily misunderstood. And then sometimes he just said stuff that was fucking crazy because a lot of people who are unique and geniuses and really smart and really talented are also kind of loopy. Um, plus he took lots of drugs and, you know, uh, he was a product of his environment and of, of his time. But part of it was introspection. And when I'm reading Freud, I'm like, he went back. He was capable of going into trances. And I think he had a unique gift for actually accessing very early memories that most of us can't. Because if you, if you look at the theory as an adult from the outside, you'd be like, that is so weird and horrifying. I want to reject it. I want to mock it. And then I want to kick him while he's dead in his grave because it's, it's a horrifying idea. If you experience it, if you try the mental exercise, the, um, the thought experiment of being like Freud and going back to the child state, if you imagine, if you give yourself a couple of minutes to just pretend that you can remember what it was like to look up to your parents and what they would have meant to you when you were one and a half years old, you'll probably see that actually a lot of what's going on there makes sense. A lot of what is being suggested there, because it's from a it's pre-language, it's pre-concept, it's very, it's you at your most primal. Um, I, I've only, my sister just uh, not that long ago gave birth to a small human. And um, then I spent a lot of time for the first time ever with a baby and it was really cool. But you can kind of see how like they are mini savages. They're like mini cavemen. So he meets up with another baby, uh, 13 months old, who's similar age to him. And they, they kind of like look at each other and they go, Rah! and she goes, Rah! and then they just go, Rah! and pick up sand and eat it. And they're both eating it and going, Rah! and you think this is, this is humanity. This is us in our primal state. They want things and they go, Rah! give me the thing. And then you give it to them and they shove it in their own eye and just, Rah! everything is just savagery the entire time. They're little barbarians. They're, they're from a different culture and we need to learn to respect their culture. Um, that's if you can give yourself a couple of seconds of going back there and then imagine your parents fighting and imagine what your parents would have looked like from that perspective looking up and that storm of you would experience it emotionally before anything else. And you would experience it vibrationally. You would experience the volume of noise through your now small body, which has not grown to be uh, layered and, and there is no ego boundary there. There's no way of conceptualizing what's going on. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. It's frightening. And I think when parents are screaming at each other, the uh, terror of the uh, baby um, will probably be arguably like a um, uh, primal terror, like this is a survival issue. I, I might die as a result of this interaction, which you might go, well, it's a bit of an exaggeration. Why, why be so, why would kids be so dramatic? 
First of all, I think there's a historical genetic precedent. Uh, arguments and violent conflicts between adults have led to kids being killed. Um, but perhaps more at a structural level. If there is not harmony within the household, then you could end up in the wilderness and being eaten. So we're going to go through different archetypes, I think. I think this is probably a good idea. But I particularly want to focus on this one for now. And I want you to look at, if this does come up for you, what are the emotional flashbacks that layer the suprastate? How does it feel to be in this archetypal primordial mode? What are the behaviors you engage in when you're in helpless, sad baby mode? What are the beliefs? How do your beliefs change? Because they do. Your, your beliefs will become a puerile. You'll switch into puerile beliefs. You'll switch into an infantile mode. You know, things will get better. No, they won't. No, it's shit. It'll just be shit. It's all shit. <laughs> you go, well, you just give it a couple of days, remain stoic, and things will work out. No, they won't. They're just going to suck forever. Your beliefs are going to change. And particularly, I want this, uh, the fact that we're calling it a baby, to remind you to have the compassion for a baby that isn't you. So how, like, if I had a baby here, and I went, this baby is traumatized and it's crying and it's upset. Would you say, oh, fucking weakling. What well, was fucking pathetic? It's uh, pathetic. Probably not. I hope not. If you would, can you fuck off my channel? Um, if you were like, no, I would never do that. Why would you do that to yourself then? Why would you see yourself in a state of helplessness and then worsen it by pouring scorn on it? and then guilting and shaming the baby for the fact that it's sad. Don't. You've gone into this state. Oh, I'm not in my normal mindset. If you have the wherewithal to say, I'm not in my normal mindset now, I've gone into an, an abuse, abusive archetypal flashback, this is how I feel. If you have the wherewithal to just say that and to delineate, put a discrete boundary between your normal state and that, it's not going to bring you out of it. I'm not going to bring you out of it, but at least you can say this isn't me. <clears throat> this isn't um, this isn't the truth of who I am. This is how I feel right now. I probably won't feel this way tomorrow. I probably won't feel this way later today. It's going to take however long it takes. I should do things that support me in coming out of it. But I am in an abusive archetypal flashback right now. Um, this came off of like a dream. I woke up and I was having a dream. Um, I think like it was it was a pen, and somebody was trying to give me a, a pen, and I couldn't reach it. And then I felt sad because in the dream I was a baby and my hands were really small and my arms were too short to grab the pen and they were pulling it away from me. And then I was sad and I gave up. And I went, you know, that's sad. You give up sometimes when you feel provoked. You give up sometimes when you feel exasperated. Now as an adult, something in business, something in, I don't know, the rental of the office, actually not Liverpool Science Park has been really good with me, but uh, traffic or... Uh, I ordered something on Amazon and it didn't come on time or something, some stupid thing. And then I'll go into exasperation and then I'll be, I'll have a response to that and I'll go, oh, I don't know what the fuck that is. What's that about then? Why am I giving up? Where's this really uh, infantile sort of give up thing coming from? And, uh, the other thing that I've found with me particularly more than giving up, um, is the tendency towards self isolation. I think. I have a pronounced ten of all these, uh, anxiety, frustration, feelings of persecution, giving up on isolation. I think isolation is one of my uh, default settings. Um, why would the sad baby isolate? Because people are dangerous. If I get involved with people, I'm going to end up frustrated, exasperated, 
disappointed. They're going to, they're going to confirm my worst beliefs about the state of humanity, blah, blah, blah. I may as well, uh, just stay on my own. So uh, that's me. Don't, I'm not putting suggestions in your head. Whatever this is for you, let that be for you. Learn who you are. Be compassionate to what you're dealing with and work from that place. Have a sense of humor. Be curious. Work from that place. And, um, I don't think this is the kind of thing that's going to disappear overnight. But I think the first foothold to dealing with an abusive archetypal flashback, which then is going to operate like an altar or split in the personality or a super state, is to recognize that it is there and go, aha, I see you. There you are. Um, I hope that was useful. As ever, thank you very much for your time and your attention. Always pay attention to what you're giving your time and attention to, because otherwise it can just slip away without you thinking about it. Um, so yeah, thanks. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Ta.